Okay. Every year, every year we learn about uh, hello. The time has come. We're beginning. Every year we learn about we learn a little bit about Megillat Esther because every year we have Purim. So it's hard to avoid Megillat Esther. It's also it's also true that Megillat Esther is a little hard to put your finger on. I mean, you know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. But it's hard to say that we know what motivates everybody to do what they do. Or what was it that made it turn out as well as it turned out when it was just the day before as bad as you could ever imagine it to be? And also, um, the characters are not so clear, at least not to me. Well, there's, you know, Mordechai, he's one of the good guys, but he, he doesn't actually do much. He represents the collective consciousness of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people, sometimes they have to fast and, and be in mourning. And sometimes they have to dress up in big day malchut. So he's the person who represents that. But he doesn't do much. I mean, he, you can't say that Mordechai saved the Jews. It was, after all, Esther who saved the Jews. Now, Esther is not a heroic personality like Devorah. Devorah was a, a general. And Devorah uh, uh, fought a battle, led the Jews into, into war, and there's no doubt that Barak ben Avinoam, who was the general, the actual general, certainly took uh, second place to Devorah. Esther was not like that. Esther came very close to chickening out, to not accepting the responsibility, even when Mordechai explained to her that it was unlikely that she was the queen of all of Persia for no Jewish reason at all. I mean, she had to come to the conclusion somehow that, you know, she lucked out. She won the Mephala Pais. She was the queen. And that didn't seem to uh, demand much of her because uh, she hadn't been called to see the king in a, in a month. I mean, so she was like one of those assistants to a a minister, who they put him in a room someplace, and then they kind of don't know that he's there. That was Esther. She became the queen, but she had no function as the queen. So I'm, I'm just saying that the characters in the Megillah are not perfectly clear to me. I mean, I know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, but I don't know what's so good about them. And I also don't know why the bad guys are as bad as they are. Now, we like to say that anti-Semitism started with Haman HaRasha. And that, in fact, may be the case. I mean, I'm not sure. But maybe anti-Semitism started with uh, Haman. That is not to say that the Jews didn't have any enemies prior to Haman. 
They had one, uh, like the major enemy in the tradition, is Amalek. But Amalek was stymied, first by the Jews who left Mitzrayim. You remember Moshe Rabbeinu went up on the hill and held up his hands. Vihi yadav emunah. That somehow the faith of the people of Israel leaving Mitzrayim was strong enough to overcome Amalek. And of course, uh, endless, uh, endless amounts of interpretation and reinterpretation and superinterpretation connected to Amalek exist. And then later on in the time of Shaul HaMelech, King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, he fought with the Amalekites and he, um, and he beat them. Of course, he, he didn't quite do what the prophet Shmuel told him to do, which was to kill them all. He had a little bit of mercy. I mean, sometimes mercy is a bad thing. And uh, he was merciful uh, to the Amalekites, to the king. And so he was um, eventually forced to give up kingship. He was killed, but his family did not retain the kingship in Israel. So that Haman, after Amalek, right, represents the rejuvenation of Amalek somehow. Amalek is reincarnated through Haman. Now the Megillah, of course, doesn't say that Haman was an Amaleki, but it does say that he was an Agagi. And we know that that Agag was at the time of Shaul HaMelech, he was the king of Amalek. And so, Chazal tell us that the reference is almost too obvious. It's almost, you know, of course, of course, Haman ben Hamdata Ha'agagi must be an Amaleki. And the advantage to saying that Haman is an Amaleki is that you don't have to figure out why he did it. Because he, he got it in the gene pool. Uh, he inherited it. He, that's how he was. Before he met a Jew, he knew that when he meets them, he's going to have to do away with them. Yet it's true that the Megillah, that Megillah Esther uh, puts it a little bit differently and says that there was on some, in some way a religious battle that took place between Haman and, and Mordechai. That Haman was given the, was charged with uh, being Mishnah Melech. He was going to be like the king. And therefore it was important that everybody should bow down to Haman. Uh, Mordechai, according to the Megillah, Mordechai did not bow down. Lo zami menu. He didn't take it too seriously, seeing Haman walking around. Of course, Chazal have difficulty with this, because no halacha demands that I jeopardize myself just not to stand up when Haman goes by. Maybe I don't want to do it. I don't want to give him too much kavod. But there's no prohibition. There's no prohibition against getting up when Haman goes by. 
So Chazal rewrote the story, or, or didn't rewrite the story, but maybe the way they understood the story was that, that Haman was pushing idolatry at that time. And somehow he had this idolatrous icon either hanging on him or in his socks. He sewed it in the, the dmut in his, in his clothing. And so, and so when everybody was getting up, they were not just getting up to Haman, but they were getting up to, uh, they were getting up to this idolatry. And so that Mordechai was not willing to do, because we know that there are certain circumstances which the halacha calls yehareg v'al yavor. Some things you just have to, you just can't compromise. And one of them, of course, is avodazara. One of them is avodazara. It's not clear why that is the case, but it's very clear that that is the case. That avodazara does not lend itself to compromise. You can't say, you can't say, oh, you know, it's just a little bit of Avodah Zarah. It's just, you know that Daniel and his friends, in a story that took place either before Megillat Esther or after Megillat Esther, I'm not so good on the uh, chronology here, partially because uh, it doesn't work out so well. But, you know, Daniel... Daniel came to Bavel with the exile of Tzitkiyahu, the last king in Israel. So the kings in Bavel took the youngest and smartest guys because they could speak Aramaic. They knew Aramaic. Remember, the book of Daniel is written largely in Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic, which was a good thing to know if you were in the diplomatic service. So he took these young guys from Eretz Yisrael and he put them into a special course, which is what in Israel they call a course. And they put them into this special course, which was going to train the next generation of diplomatic wonders for the king of Bavel. But, you know, as it is in these things, you had to, uh, to accept certain social obligations. So from time to time, they would make a party for all these young, enthusiastic characters. And the king would come, and they, you know, they would do it in a, like in Westminster Abbey. Like where else would you have a party? So they would all be there in Westminster Abbey, and this would be this guy's seat, and that guy, I mean, people who died 2,000 years ago, you know, here they are, you know, here they are, here there's, oh, very exciting. And then the king would come and everybody would bow. And so Daniel and his friends found that difficult. Which goes to show, I mean, if there's accuracy here, that even in the time of the, of the, uh, the, the exile, the Babylonian exile, right, which is 586 BC, even the time of the, uh, the Babylonian exile, there was amongst some of the Jews at least, a consciousness about the problematics of Avodah That you just couldn't let yourself get involved with Avodah And Daniel, who was, uh, and his friends who were from, you know, they wouldn't eat the food. And uh, Daniel even davened three times a day. In those days in Bavel, 
right when he was in this course, this course for outstanding young uh, diplomats. So, so this idea, this idea that Avodah Zarah is problematic, remained, uh, was with the Jews in the Babylonian exile. Like, in the Second Temple, when the Second Temple was destroyed, it seems that there's been a long history of religious friction. First with the Greeks, the Hashmonaim, and then with the Romans, who understood that you had to get rid of Talmud Torah and you had to put up these, they put up idols even in the Beit HaMikdash. It was this, but at the time that Daniel went into exile, the time that Mordechai went, was in exile, it's, it's interesting to me that they had this sense that idolatry was going to do them in. And that they couldn't allow Pikuach Nefesh, they couldn't allow Pikuach Nefesh to override the prohibition against idolatry. I mean, you could have said idolatry is like eating chazer, just don't do it. But if it's done, like the people around you are eating chazer sandwiches, so no, all right, what are you supposed to do? You don't have to do anything. The same thing could have been done with idolatry. People could have said, okay, you know, it's not so terrible. I don't mean it. I don't think anything of it. So why should I put myself in a position of Yehorik Yavo? But you see that Daniel did that. And he was thrown into this Kivshan Ha'esh, which was what they liked to do in those days. And, uh, and nothing happened to him. He came out and his friends... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Right, you remember those names? They became popular names in recent times, I think. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are they're accepted now as, as names. And Daniel also is a name. Uh, so Daniel and Mordechai represent the fight or the, the stand that Am Yisrael took against Idolatry. At the same time, in the Megillah, you have uh, Esther, who's acting as the wife of Achashverosh, which doesn't sound to me like the way you should go. And that also, it's one of the three Isurim for which you should allow Yehoreg Valyavo. So you see that, like that tension in the Megillah? Here's Mordechai, lo He's not going to move. He sits there, like a stone when Haman walks by. When it comes to Esther marrying Achashverosh, well, it's like, it's like a good thing to have. She's like, what do you call those spies who are sleeping someplace and there'll be uh, moles? Uh, yeah, you know, you have the, like, she's, that's Esther. They, they put her in there and uh, if something happens, we need you, we're going to call you. Right? But as long as we don't need you, we're not going to call you. I mean, that's... Uh, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, to me, it's interesting. But I don't understand the, like, the personalities. Like, what, what is it that they're doing exactly? So I say that uh, uh, Daniel was willing to give himself up, as was Mordechai, apparently. But not Esther. Esther was... She wasn't married? No, oh. she was married maybe some say, but yeah. maybe she wasn't. Maybe not. So how would you put her? How would you class? I think it's right that she had to marry a, a king like that, but it was, she didn't have to 
Yeah, but I mean, uh, if she went to marry him, she went to marry him, but uh, she was pushed into it by Mordechai. I mean, that's not, you know, something that you would imagine. It's got a strange way to save the Jewish people. I mean, it must be some other way. They could have had, like, somebody becoming the Sar Hamashkim and then poisoning Haman. Why is it so, this whole story has these uh, dubious characters in that? Anyway, I'd like to talk a little about Haman. First, we'll talk about the easy part. There's a tradition about Haman which goes as follows. See, the first source from the Gibar and Chulin, Haman min Torah min So the answer is, there's a Pasuk in Bereshit in the beginning, Perigimel, Hamin Ha'etz. Hamin Ha'etz. So, so where is Haman in the Torah? Huh? Where's Haman in the Torah? Well, if you, the, the, the letters spell Haman. Hamin ha'etz. Hey, mem nun, that's Haman. That seems a bit, you know, a bit forced. I mean, you find three letters that come out to Haman, so Haman is in the Torah. But it certainly represents a philosophy, I think. To say, minayin Haman min Torah, and then to say, here he is, it's, it's the equivalent of saying, as the Ramban says about other things, that this has got to happen. This has got to happen, that the maturing of Am Yisrael into Am Yisrael depends on Haman. That's what it means. Haman min HaTorah min What is the Torah? The Torah is the path in this uh, computer lingo. The path that Am Yisrael would have to go through in order to become Am Yisrael. And so Chazal, as you know, come up with this absolutely remarkable idea that Kimu the Kiblu, Hayudim, has something to do with Kabbalat Torah, and that if Kabbalat Torah at Har Sinai was done with this tremendous awareness of of God's control in the world, after all, there were the Ten Makot in Mitzrayim, and then there was. Kriyat Yam and then there's the whole event of, of, uh, of Har Sinai, where it's impossible to have been through this process and not to recognize that God has dominion in the world. But of course, the religious question that came up by the time of Mordechai and Esther was that God may have dominion in the world, but does God exercise dominion? in the world. Is God concerned day by day, minute by minute, with what's going on in the world, or is God concerned about the world sometimes? Those are the two possibilities that, that stood before Am Yisrael in Paras in the days of Mordechai and Esther. Now they knew that God cares at times very much about the created world. 
And that, you know, when God cares about the created, created world, that's Matan Torah, that's Yitziat Mitzrayim, that's fraught with miracles. But what about when you don't see the miracles? Kimu v'kiblu, v'nei Yisrael, understanding after Purim, that God's concern about the world is real and ongoing, whether we can point to a specific event or not, that's something that they understood at Purim. So when I say, what I mean is, how do I know that there had to be a Haman? I mean, Haman is sort of the last of the Amalekites. I mean, you don't hear too much about Amalek after that. You know that the, the Rambam, the Rambam and the Modevuchim, the Rambam and the Modevuchim, when he asks about uh, in Breshis, Perek Lamed Zion, the Alufei Esav. There's a list of the kings that are descendants of Esav. Now, of course, everybody understands Esav, he's not one of our heroes, right? Uh, we don't have to know more about Esav than you have to know. What did the Torah tell us? The Alufei Esav. What do we have to know? The kings of Esav. So you know that the Zohar says that this is the most difficult chapter in the Torah because the chapter of Alufei Esav doesn't have a pshat. That's what the Zohar calls difficult. If a parsha has pshat and also Kabbalah, pshat and sod, so that's regular. That's how it is with the Torah. But if the Torah, there's a parasha that only has sowed, that's irregular. That makes it the most difficult. It ought to learn the rest of the Torah if you don't know the Kabbalah. No, nicha, you'll still get something. You'll go through it. But if in Paragrabbit Zion and Beratius, you don't know Kabbalah, you've got nothing. You don't, you don't understand what the words mean. Because those words are totally unnecessary for us for our world view, for understanding of things. How do we have to do that? Maybe we have to know about Esau. Esau, Yaakov, that's something. But I have to know about the children of Esau, the grandchildren of Esau, the kings who came from Esau. No, that I don't have to know. So the Rambam says that if you look at the descendants of Esau, you'll find that one of them is named Amalek. And since there's a mitzvah in the Torah, to do away with Amalek. It's important to know the lineage. It's like, let's say you meet somebody in the street. Hi, how are you? Who are you? He says, oh, I'm an Amalekite. So you have to kill him, which is not something that I think anybody here is looking forward to. But before you kill him, you're going to say, listen, maybe you think you're an Amalekite. Could you prove that you're Amalekite? So you'll say, yeah, my father was this, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, all the sudden, and that's why the Torah tells us all these names, so we can check on this erstwhile Amalekite before we kill him. So, so there you have it. That's what the Rambam says. So the Rambam would seem that there are Amalekites walking around. Now I know that it's true that the Darshanim you don't say that everybody's a Molech, everybody's an enemy, everybody is a Nazi, everybody is a German. I mean, but okay, okay, I understand. It's a homiletic twist. But if you didn't have a need for the homiletic twist, 
If you didn't have to do it that way, then uh, then it would seem that Amalek is gone. So Haman Minatora Minayim means that Haman was responsible for a lesson which B'nai Yisrael learned that was totally, totally uh, uh, necessary, min ha-Torah, in order to forge the final form of Am Yisrael. Like, what would Am Yisrael look like? So what they would look like is a people who had faith that God determines what goes on in the world. Now, that does not mean as has been pointed out elsewhere this week on some uh, Google thing that somebody sent me. That doesn't mean that I know what God is doing. It doesn't mean, sadly, that I know why people are killed, individuals, why people are sick and die. What it is that God is doing, the, the mathematical... Uh, uh, reformulations of the actions of God in heaven are so complex that it strikes me as quite remarkable that anybody could argue I know why this happened or isn't this a sign that that to me is not good thinking we do as well as we can we make the cheshbon as well as we can. But we don't know at all why God does what God does. And uh, you see that uh, the one who tried to figure this out was Abraham Avinu, but he couldn't do it. Abraham Avinu said, if you kill everybody in Sodom, is that just? That's what Abraham Avinu didn't understand. And at the end, he still didn't understand because... God saved the only person who was perhaps worthy of being saved. That was Lot. So here, that's what, the, that's what it says. It says, Haman mina Torah minayin, hamin ha'etz. Esther mina Torah minayin. Esther mina Torah minayin. There's a posuk that says, Anochi haster astir. That, that, uh, uh, Esther, the way I understand this is that Esther sort of emerged. She wasn't, there was no way to know what Esther's uh, position in the, uh, in the story would turn out to be. Like you're up to chapter 6, chapter 7, and you don't know anything about Esther. How is she going to do it? So that's Anochi Aster Aster. That sometimes salvation Salvation comes in unexpected ways. I mean, you don't give up. I think that's what, that's what the Jewish people said. Always when I, was, uh, when I was very young, I heard the debates between Yaakov Herzog and... Uh, what? Toynbee, yeah. So Toynbee said, it just can't be. I mean, how could you be so devoted to just being the way you are. And that, that, I think he's right. I mean, Takasha, he said the Greeks weren't like that, the Egyptians weren't like that, the Romans weren't like, nobody was like that. So the argument to him 
that the Jews were like that was a difficult argument. Because if no one is like that, then the Jews are not going to be like that either. So, this is Anochi Haster Astir. This is Anochi Haster Astir, that, that we always believe, we have always managed to believe, those of us who have remained within the fold of the Jewish people, that it'll work out. I don't know how it'll work out. We can imagine the Jews for 2,000 years davening that they want to go back to Eretz Israel, going back to Yerushalayim. They just kept davening. And I think from that, I mean, I can't tell you that I know, but uh, of course, but uh, it seems to me from the stories that I've heard and the way people talk about it, when they davened, they really meant it. They didn't have any doubts that they were on their way to, uh, to Eretz Yisrael. And even the non-religious Jews, or the Jews turned out to be Jews, but not so religious, where they were offered alternatives to Eretz Yisrael, couldn't pick up on it. Didn't make sense to them. They weren't looking for a house. They wanted to go back to Eretz Yisrael. They didn't want to go to Siberia and speak Yiddish. You know, which was an offer. Beribijan, right? Go to Siberia. The Jews go to Siberia. You put up signs in Yiddish like they have today in Williamsburg, Borough Park, you know. You put up signs in Yiddish and the signs say, we're here. They didn't want to. They were supported. I mean, the, gov- the Russian government thought this was a great idea. It was not absorbed by the Jewish people. And we're talking about people who are not religious Jews, not people who have some kind of mystical outlook on what is going to happen to them. There are people who are, you know, who come, who have Jewish descent, you know, who speak Yiddish, just like in, uh, in Ukraine, they spoke Ukrainian. I mean, it was not a big deal as they understood it. But they wouldn't go. And those who go went couldn't hack it. And the same thing was true with other offers that were made to the Jewish people. Whether they were in Africa or an island someplace. It was not, it was not the solution that Am Yisrael looked for. So that's Hanochi Aster Astir. means pure. Zach, zach, some kind of a, of a, of a pure bosom. So that's what it says in Masechet Chulin. That's what the Gemara says that Mordechai and Esther and Haman were part of the formation of the creation of the reconfirmation of Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael, you know, the Maral says that Am Yisrael were created in the entire book of Bereshis. It means until Yaakov went to Mitzrayim and until Yosef greeted them in Mitzrayim, you didn't have Am Yisrael. This Gemara, to my mind, implies that until Purim, you didn't have Am Yisrael. Because the ideas that Am Yisrael held fast to in the generations of the diaspora were ideas which in part were learned 
through Mordechai and Haman and Esther. Now at the same time, I mean, I mean, so you see, I mean, Haman, he's there, he's a hero. Haman is a hero, right? He's one of the people who did it. Don't be like Haman. But that's something. Now look at the Gemara in Gitin Davnun Zayin Amud Bet. This is also related to, uh, this Gemara is related to Pesach. What do you say? The great grandchildren of Haman Harasha were teaching to learning Torah in Bnei Brak. You know where Bnei Brak is? You know? Where it says Coca-Cola. That's Bnei Brak. Now in Bnei Brak, there are a lot of people who learn Torah. Torah. But I don't think that any of them would claim that they are me b'nei b'anav shel haman harashah, but that's what the Gemara says. Then the Gemara says, b'nei b'anav shel sisra lamduti no kot Sisra was the general who fought against Dvora and Barak ben Avinoah. M'bnei b'anav shel sancheriv, sancheriv was responsible for the exile of the ten tribes in 722 BCE. A great guy. B'nei b'rashel sancha'iv lamdu Torah b'rabim. Ma'inon. Who are these b'nei b'anav who learned Torah b'rabim? Shmaya v'aftalion. You know Shmaya v'aftalion? They are the period which we call today the Zugot. Because they appear in Pirkei Avot as couples. Two of them. But they're really, they're like Tanaim. Like you can divide the Tanaitic period into two. Well, the second part is from zero till the year 200 approximately when Rabbi Nasi did whatever he did with the Mishnah. And then the 200 years before zero, which were the years of the Zugot. And, uh, you know, they're also Tanaim, all of them, but they're not mentioned in the Mishnah very much. I mean, except here in Pirkei Avot. Okay, so it would seem from this Gemara that even though Amalek as the leader, I'm sorry, Haman as the leader of the Amalekites, even though that sort of came to an end, I mean, he died, he was hanging there on this tree, and, and there were no more Amalekites. Uh, so, uh, Chazal say, no, 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 that's not how the story ended. The story ended by Haman being reabsorbed into the world of, not Am Yisrael, but into the world of Torah. The world of Torah, certainly, according to Pirkei Avot, is the elitist world of Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael there is an elite, right? Because the Torah is the spiritual avenue that we have to get closer to God, but it's also... It also, the way we direct ourselves in the world in which we have been placed, we, right, are in this world, and the Torah enables us to formulate a purpose. What are we doing here? And so, Haman, mi b'nei Haman, lamdu Torah, b'nei of course, Chazal say other things, how could this be? So they say, well, Haman had really a lot of children. He didn't just have the ten children that appear in the Megillah. 
and which we try to kind of get through as quickly as we possibly can. But he had other children. Some say 40 children, some say 100 children, I don't know. But, but they had a lot of children. And since he had a lot of children, the possibility that his great-grandchildren would be in Bnei Brak, learning Torah. In fact, this Gemara existed before Bnei Brak. I mean, Bnei Brak existed as a, a, a history. But what we call Bnei Brak today, you have all those people walking around, you know, all those women going shopping, and all those men going to Kolel. You know, that Bnei Brak didn't exist. But this is, uh, but this is what Chazal say. So I wanted to tell you what the Tiberi Shlomo says. The Tiberi Shlomo is uh, the Radomska. Radomsky was a Rebbe in a city called Yah. I want to say that we, we know that well, we have... What do we have? I mean, what does that mean? That well, they have their roots? No, nothing is far-fetched. It's just unexpected. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing far-fetched at all in anything. Anything you could imagine could actually happen. But some things are less expected than others. So anyway, this is what the Radomsker said. The Radomsker, see, you see the third, the third source here? You know that Haman went to party number one with Esther. And Esther said, let's go to party number two. And Haman was ecstatic. Ecstatic. He was invited to party number one, but he didn't expect that there would be a follow-up party that he would be invited to. And so he interpreted reality in the way that people might. They'd say, Haman b'yomahu, Samech v'tov lev. Samech v'tov lev. Tov lev in Hebrew means, like, you're elevated. It's not just that you're happy about something, but that your whole attitude, your whole, or the whole way of being has changed. That's tov lev. So, l'chorah, geish l'tbonein b'davar zeh, shenichtav al-rashak hazeh, he says, how could the Megillah write that, uh, that Muhammad was Samech V'tov Leib? Samech V'tov Leib, that sounds like it's reserved to good people, for people who know the score, for people who are able to make a distinction, or make a distinction between, you know, whatever happened and what didn't happen. Ulama Nirekazeh, the second line, Nirebazeh. Ki ita v'psikta de Rabbi Kahana. That's a medrash. Psikta de Rabbi Kahana is the name of a medrash, which is, of course, a medrash agada. Right? There's a limited number of medrash, medrashe halacha, but an almost unlimited number of medrashe agada. One of the well-known ones is psikta de Rabbi Kahana on the parsha of Zachor. But it is not the parasha we read this Shabbos, but the parasha of the war with Amalek. Kiyad al Keska, Amar Avlozav ben Yaakov nishpa kodesh bocha bekisol sheilom mekabel ger mizaroshel Amalek uvechule. You see the pasuk right below. Vayomer 
Kiyad al case come, that somehow this possible represents that there's a fissure in the world, like a break. There's a break, and that break has something to do with God. And that's why the Pasuk says, Kiyad al Kais Ka. Kais is, is Kisei, missing an olive. And Ka is the name of God missing Vav Kais. So there's something missing. Milchama Lashem Bamalek Midor Dor. Somehow that this causes, or this has to cause, a war with Amalek Midor Dor. And Rabbi Lozo said, Rabbi Lozo ben Yaakov said, This was a kind of a, a way of making an, an oath that kings would use, kings in, uh, that, that they knew about. But that God would make an, did make an oath, that even if some descendant of Amalek would decide to convert, his conversion would not be would not be counted. David, ben David. Now, if you don't remember the story, just look at the source below that. So that there was a war with Amalek that was begun by Shaul but was continued by David HaMelech. I'm reading the Psukim. So this guy looked like a refugee. He had run away from someplace and he came to see David. David he said, I am, I'm a lost uh, Israeli. I was in the battle. So he reports, the war went badly. Shaul and Yonatan were both killed. How do you know that they died? That Shaul and Yonatan died. This, of course, was important for David, who was going to become the king. So we know that Shaul was fighting a lost cause. Uh, the enemy was overcoming him, and he was on his sword, meaning that the sword had had entered his body. He called to me. He, Shaul HaMelech, called to me. I said to him, I'm an Amaleki. I mean, the Amalekites were lived in the south of Eretz Israel. I think, you know, either on the western side of the Jordan, the eastern, both sides. Anyway, they lived there. So he asked this guy who admitted he was an Amaleki to kill him. This is the, the story of the death of Shaul HaMelech. 
is ve'emod alav ve'amotetehu. And I stood up over him, and I killed him. Ki adati, ki lo yichyech lo. I knew he was going to die anyway. Ve'akacha nezer asher roshov atzada, asher alzroov aviyem el adoni heina. I imagine this, an Amalekite is crowning David as the king of Israel. How is he doing that? He brings the crown of Shaul Amelech, right? He brings the crown, and he brings this, uh, some kind of a, not a ring, what do you call this? Something. <laughs> you know, like a bracelet. Maybe it's not like a bracelet, but they used to wear it on the arm, the upper arms, not a, you know, not jangling around. He says, David went into a state of mourning. Shaul was dead. Yonatan was dead. So they spent the entire army of David Amalek was fat, it was was uh, distressed about the the death of Shaul and Yonatan. Vayomer ben Ishger Amaleki Anochi. Right, the plot thickens. My father, the Amaleki, was a ger, and as we know today, being a ger is not an easy thing. Right? You know, you, it's like a, a new kind of game. Oh, you think you're a ger? Today, I read in. Um, no, I don't like asides. I mean, I read in some kind of also some Google story that the chief rabbi announced that so-and-so, his geirut is no good because in America they pay a lot of money for geirut. Like if you want a geirut, you, uh, you pay. So he says he even knows of somebody who paid a million dollars to be converted. I said, I said I, I miss out on all these good opportunities. I mean, a billion dollars, of course, I'll convert them right away. I mean, what's the, but in any event, this became an issue recently. It just recently became an issue. And the result of which is that Orthodox rabbis in America, they can't always convert people. They, you have to be on a list. Everything in Israel is like a secret list. So there's a secret list of rabbis who are allowed to convert people, and if you're not on the list, I mean, you can't do it, and the million dollars will just disappear. So, he said, Ben ish ger amaleki anochi, vayome lav David, ech lo yareita lishloch yadcha, lishachet et Mashiach Hashem. He says, what? How could you have imagined that you had the right to kill Shaul HaMelech? I mean, what's the difference if he asked you to kill him? I mean, who are you? Don't you think that to murder the king of Israel, you have to be uh, somebody of stature? Right? 
So David calls some guy and says, you see this one? Kill him. Vayomer lav David damcha al roshecha ki picha anavecha lemor anachi motati et mishiach Hashem. So what do you think? What do you think uh, David Amelech thought? He thought that uh, that being a member of Amalek is a curse. You can't overcome it. You can't. I mean, look look at what he did. He fought with the with the army of Israel. He was devoted to Shaul and he killed him because he asked him to kill him. And then he came to David Amelech with the crown and this uh, armband uh, to declare him king of Israel. And what did David Amelech do? He killed him. What does the Radomska say? He says... Uh, he says, that God has promised not to accept a ger. David did not accept him. He was not part of Am Yisrael. V'nei zehu kama haya pli'ah be'nei devreya medrash hazeshu efech agmara. He says, you imagine this medrash says that Amalek is like you can't cure yourself from being Amalek. You have to get rid of him. And he says, what about the gemara? What about the gemara? The ita. In Gitin, Nun Zayin Ovet, the Gemara that we just learned, Mebenei Banav Shel Haman Lamdu Torah Bebenei Brak. So the Radomsker doesn't just say it's a it's a wonder that Bnei Banav Shel Haman Lamdu Lamdu Torah Bebenei Brak, but he said it's a kasha. It is a contradiction. David Amelech, if David Amelech would have known that the great-great-great-grandchildren of this fellow would be learning Torah in Benebach. He wouldn't have killed him. It would be such a suffix. The only way to explain David HaMelech is that David HaMelech was certain that HaKadosh Baruch would not allow Geirim, whose origin was Amalek, he wouldn't allow them into Klai Yisrael. So he killed him. Well, how did these guys, these Bnei Haman, get to Bnei Brak to learn Torah and to teach Torah. I mean, that's the question that the Tiveris Shlomo asks, the Radomsker. What's the question? That's the question. Okay. Achein hanau, nearly, alpima sheyadanu mimalata tzadikim. So here the Radomsker says, everybody knows what I'm about to tell you about tzadikim. Ki gadol gavoa, he says, Gadol, you know, Hasidim, they have this thing about eating. You ever notice that? They're always at a table and they're always eating. They're always eating. And so he tells you why they're always eating. He says, We know something about the righteous ones. Greater is the one who has pleasure 
משולחן גבוה, שולחן גבוה זה מזבח. The food that's prepared on the מזבח, אשר תלמידי חכמים מסובים בה, when other תלמידי חכמים are sitting around the table, להביא את האדם לידי טהרה וקידושה. That it's not enough to be at the table. It's not enough to bring the korban, to sacrifice. But what you need is the uh, camaraderie of Talmidei Chachamim, of special people to bring you to that level of Tarah and Kedushah. Lachain, kasher zimna ester et haman al amishteh azeh, al amishteh zeh pa'amayim. והיה המן גם כן שואף מעט מחיות הקדושה משתי הסעודות הללו. So the Verdovsker, Hashem צחנת. He's not embarrassed. He said, he said, Esther was like a Hasidish Rebbe. And if Esther made a meal, and they all ate together with Esther, they were, they were in heaven. They were all in heaven. That's Esther min ha-Torah min ayin. That even in Haster Aster, even when you don't see the presence of God, God is there. That was Esther. So when she organized the meal, she was the Rebbe. And the meal was not Stama meal. It wasn't like you would imagine. But it was rather a meal that brought you closer to Kedusha and Tahara. And he was there. He was there by Yag Haman next to the last line. גם כן שואף מעט מחיות הקדושה משתי הסעודות. Imagine that Haman ate two meals with Esther. And Esther, eating a meal with Esther, was experientially different. משתי הסעודות הללו וזה שאמר, שמח וטוב לב. What was the Radomskis Kasha at the beginning? What did he say? That he was happy. But he wasn't just happy, like, like he won the, 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 that Ariella called him from the Vala Pius. It wasn't that kind of happy. It was a different kind of happy. He was too late. Too late. She didn't call you, right? She didn't call you. All right, there's a fight, but she didn't call either. I only know about it because I heard it on the radio. But, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the call. I mean, <laughs> on the other hand, I think it's the, the amounts are too small. Samech v'tuv levav. So, samech means he's happy. Yes, there's a bit of a tuv levav. Tuvlevov is a change in your spiritual makeup. It's like you're a different person. So the Radomsker said, the Radomsker said, why does it say, It could just as well say in the Gemara, That would be a really startling thing, right? Would that be amazing? The answer is, the answer is that Amalek was Amalek. They couldn't produce Torah learners. But Haman, because he ate the meal with, uh, he ate the meal with, uh, with Esther, Hamalka, 
who was hostile, hostile, who represented that even when you don't know something is going on, something is going on, it was inconceivable that he, Haman, would not be affected by what was going on at the meal. And so he finishes. But not from Amalek. From Haman. So that when you say it doesn't just mean that Am Yisrael had to understand that even when God is not acting in an obvious way there's no reason to think that God is not acting. Right? That's, uh, that's what Am Yisrael had to learn. But that the Haster Aster this, this understanding of things came about because Esther was able to produce, Esther was able to produce something different in the world, something that, that nobody else ever knew about. And that was that a su'uda itself could be a religious moment, that the, that the spirituality, and this is a Hasidus, you know, they always have, if you learn, if you learn the Tanya, and then Tanya, you see that the Balatanya has this problem with how come we are the way we are. Like there's a lot of things about us that are like, uh, I don't want to say uh, Nefesh Bahamas because he says it many times. But I mean, uh, we are like, uh, in many ways, we're like animals. Like, we eat, we sleep, we reproduce, we, you know, we have uh, desires and uh, we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, if, you ma- if you match up, like a, like a living person to a porpoise. We don't come about so much better, you know. Porpoises are friendly, they're happy, they eat, they sleep, they do, you know. So, so that somehow the Hasidim decided, or they understood, they understood after, I mean, it took a long time, that just as the Mizbeach, the Korban, must produce a different kind of eating, it's not like just eating a hamburger, but that, that uh, somehow we can strive to produce that result through the eating that we do. And to some extent, it's done through brachot, I think. Right? You, you kind of say, God did this. That you try to involve God in what it is that you are doing. But in the Hasidut, the idea of having a meal together, of sharing the food with the Rebbe is an idea that has certainly a very powerful place in the way, in the way they do it. And so Haman was influenced by the Su'uda that he ate with Esther who understood something about Haster Astir and therefore both of them both of them were elevated by this uh, understanding and even though Haman himself was killed there, still, we know that Bnei Banov Shel Haman was sitting and learning Torah, sitting and learning Torah in Bnei Brak. So it's not so clear, not so clear, it's not so clear that, uh, that, these per- that these people, that as I said at the beginning, that these characters are all one-sided and they are actually always uh, uh, kind of influencing each other. And so that even though Esther, by one reading, you know, Esther and Haman are at odds with each other and there's no way for them to make any peace, there is nevertheless this Gemara in Gitin 
that seems to indicate something different. And so Haman, as, even though he was uh, certainly the father of anti-Semitism in some way, nevertheless is perceived as having been influenced by those who he had uh, been dueling with, with uh, Esther and Hashverosh and etc. And therefore we can say about them that B'nai Ban of Shulhaman Lamdu Torah B'nai Brak. Have a happy Purim. And Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. The Shabbos is a Parashat Zohar. Uh, it's good that in our time, you know, women also go to hear Parashat Zohar. I mean, it's not a bad thing to do. Not a bad thing to do. There's a machlokis achronim about whether women are chayavot to hear Parashat Zohar or not. But, mayesh. Sometimes you go for the optimal position. Good Shabbos, good Shabbos. Marif, you're diving already? Took us so long to dive in Mincha. What? Yeah, but they knew that he died. He wasn't uh, there. They, well, they still needed uh, some specific... Uh,